And I'll tell you, over the years, I've begun to just find solace in trying to stick with what I believe are the facts and not to try to encourage or inflame the conflict between these opposing groups. So with that said, what I mean is that you can hunt mountain lions and conserve them, whereas some people believe that those two things are in complete opposition. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the 9th of June, 2021, uh, which is quite a few days after this podcast should have gone out. Um, But I kind of had a good excuse for that because for the last... 10, 11 days, I have been in Eswatini, which is a country uh, landlocked inside the country of South Africa, formerly known as Swaziland, um, doing uh, some documentary film work on anti-poaching efforts there. Uh, And what I was unaware of uh, heading out was that I would not only have no power, uh, but I would also have absolutely no access to internet at all until I moved to the next project that I'm working on, which is in Namibia, where I am now. Uh, And so it was uh, basically impossible for me to upload the new podcasts, which had already been recorded. And so to make up for that, this week, you're going to have two podcasts drop. Now, this one is uh, the back to the the usual format, the long form conversations. You're going to be hearing from Dr. Mark Elbrock, who's the lead scientist at Panthera's Puma program, uh, and also about his his new book, The Cougar Conundrum. Um, Basically, everything to do with mountain lions, i.e. cougars, that you would possibly want to know it's probably either in his book or in this podcast. Um, so I'm not going to add any more to that. It's a fascinating conversation. Everything from the history of mountain lions, uh, their evolution, the controversy of hunting mountain lions, and whether that's a good thing or it's a bad thing. Does it work with conservation? We cover it all in this podcast. So that's what you're going to be hearing about today. Now, of course, the last couple of podcasts that have been out have been the Conservation Roundtable, uh, where I've been speaking to Jess and Ford about amazing stories from around the world. And don't worry, that's coming back. That is going to be the next show that's out this week. So we've had episodes one and two out of six already, those have aired, uh, and you will be hearing episode three just in a couple of days after this show goes out. Uh, If you've been liking that format and liking those conversations that we've been having, because it is quite different to the podcasts that we normally put out, fire me a message uh, over on email podcast at paceproductionsuk.com or on the socials. You can find me at Byron J. Pace pretty much anywhere. Over this last two weeks, while I've been out of comms, the team at Modern Huntsman, who are our partners on this podcast, have been working extremely hard to get Volume 7 ready and out. So I actually have a lot of catching up to do today uh, to see different editorial things that I might have to do and add the finishing touches to my own article, which is focused on sustainability. Um, And it also talks about some of the work of the Atlantic Salmon Trust, which is some other film work that I've been doing over the last two months and those films are are finished now and will be releasing very soon so keep an eye out on my socials particularly instagram because that's probably where i'll post it at byron j pace uh, for any of the latest updates of that but definitely head over to modernhuntsman.com and uh, think about becoming a subscriber so that you can be the first in the line to get the new volume and as i said volume seven is going to be out very very soon to my patreon supporters Thank you very much for every single one of you who have supported 
some of you actually since the very beginning, since we launched, launched Patreon, and some of you much more recently. So welcome if you're a new Patreon supporters. In the top tier this month, uh, we have Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash Stalking. Uh, they've been posting some cool pictures recently. Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, the team at Galax Clothing, and Colin Knight. Um, if you would like to help support this podcast, have a, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And one more thing on Patreon. Before we jump into this show, uh, I put up a post probably a couple of months ago now uh, for a print. It was two Atlantic salmon jumping up a waterfall. And I had very good intentions of getting that actually printed and out to everybody before I left on this project. But uh, with the print place that I normally use not having normal hours because of COVID lockdowns and finishing actually the Atlantic Salmon Trust projects, which were an insane amount of work in a very short period of time, very appropriate being that it was also about salmon. Um, I wasn't able to get those before I left, but when I come back from this quite lengthy trip, I will make sure that I get that out. And don't worry if you're waiting on stickers or other bits and pieces for the the different tiers that you might have supported on Patreon, those will get out to you. Uh, it's just the, the unfortunate thing about me not actually being in an office all the time is that sometimes there's quite a delay for stuff like that. Uh, but anyway, with all of that said, enjoy this podcast because you will most definitely come away with it having learned something. And I'm excited to bring you the episode three of the Conservation Roundtable just in a few days' time. Mark, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. You've had quite the exciting morning already. We just spoke for two minutes off air before we started recording. I said, just pause there. This sounds very exciting. I think my listeners need to hear this. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what your morning, what your Saturday morning has looked like so far. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, welcome to my life. Nothing is predictable and you're always on call. So started the morning with a, a phone, a frantic phone call from the South. So I work a huge collaborative project in, in Washington State on the Olympic Peninsula. And the Skokomish tribe has a capture team and their houndsman called and says, I have a cat in the tree. The local crew isn't available. You have to come down and catch this cat with me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, scrambling. And I knew we had this set up to start at 11. And I was like, oh, no, we've postponed so many times that I was going to have to postpone again. And then at the last moment, the the local team down there rallied and was able to to make that happen. And then just as we're getting in on the phone, um, we use these cellular trail cameras that send an image of what walks in front of them. And uh, an uncolored mountain lion just walked in front of one of them. And so I was like, oh my gosh. And so I'm rallying our local team to go out and try to catch this cat, uh, a different cat than the first cat, um, in which is actually, I can see the hillside where that camera is from, from my window. So hopefully we're going to rally, uh, in the next hour and a bit to, to get out there and to try to catch that animal. Um, so <laughs> when you first started talking there, you, you just said, cat in the tree now there might have been some people thinking although i guess by the time this goes out i will have actually introed you in an intro that i record separately but these are big cats in trees we're specifically talking about mountain lions north america why on earth are you catching cats oh for different reasons here you know our project uh, like the big overarching question is you know wildlife connectivity so is the olympic peninsula becoming an island because there's this massive highway that runs south of Seattle all the way to Portland, Oregon. 
and it's some of the fastest development in the West. And genetic evidence suggests that this local mountain lion population is already suffering, meaning that their genetic diversity is deteriorating and becoming different than the rest of Washington state. And so we are actually working with the Department of Transportation and with six First Nations on the peninsula to study how mountain lions move on the landscape, whether or not they can cross I-5. I-5 is the name of the interstate. And if not, how do we help facilitate increased connectivity? So mountain lions are, are really like an umbrella species here because wildlife connectivity is important for far more animals than, than mountain lions. But th that's the species we're gathering data on because they move uh, in ways that really support that kind of work. They, you know, they're especially the young animals when they leave their mother, they just bounce around like electrons. You never know where they're going to go and they can move massive distances. So they're the ideal species to really test um, whether or not wildlife can indeed cross Interstate 5 safely. And if not, where should we help them through the building of infrastructure like bridges or tunnels underneath the highway or things like that? Yeah, the, the distance that some of those young cats go is utterly staggering. And what you're talking about right now, it ties in really well with two conversations that I've had in the last six months uh, about wildlife corridors and wildlife passes over road networks. Actually, all, both those conversations have been on this show, and they were both based in the US. Uh, but my mind immediately springs to uh, P22 in LA, where they're, I think they're still raising money for a huge uh, uh, crossover, like wild, wildlife crossover of, over the road network there. Um, yeah. I actually saw one of the, the fundraising days, I guess it was probably two years ago now, P22 Day inside uh, Griffith Park. In fact, in your book, which we're going to talk about, uh, The Cougar Conundrum, you mentioned P22 and Griffith Park in there um, specifically. Yes, indeed. So there, the bridge is over uh, 101, so connecting the Santa Monica mountain range to uh, sort of wild landscapes to the north, stretching 10 lanes of pavement. It's would be an incredible undertaking. I think they're now trying to raise about $80 million. Is and it 80? Wow. I didn't realize it was as much as that. Up, you know? <laughs> and so it started with around I, 40 and then it was 60. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think I, it's now at 80. last count, I remember that they'd read, I think it went, the event that I was at, I think they'd raised like $15 million. Um, I didn't realize there was still so much to go. <laughs> oh gosh, it's incredible. And I mean, it really is a remarkable story because where else in the world could you raise that amount of money to save something like 12 to 14 mountain lions? Um, I mean, Southern California is incredibly unique in their, their passion for wildlife and their local community. And as we know, LA really values LA. And, uh, and, so, and of course, the, the resources are there to tap people who want to invest in their own community and the health of their community long term. So, I mean, I, I just can't imagine trying to raise that kind of money anywhere else in the world uh, <laughs> and have a chance of doing so, you know, to build a bridge. It's pretty amazing. Connectivity, as you've pointed out, is incredibly important. And the other thing I was thinking about when you were telling us, giving us that this intro was the Florida Panthers. Now, I think that had less to do with connectivity and more to do with just an isolated pocket through the history. And I'd like to talk about the history of mountain lions, um, particularly in North America. 
and their I was going to say demise, but they've actually bolstered that population now. But their decline was largely, well, eventually, as a result of genetic degradation, which is what you're concerned about, if I'm correct. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, Florida was sort of the the role model population for studying the effects of genetic deterioration on an isolated population. As you said, I mean, it is ultimately a connectivity story because they became isolated because of a loss of connectivity. But it, um, we've brought in additional mountain lions to breed there to kind of increase genetic diversity. And of course, they, the most recent research has said that we need to continue to do so, that the, there's still an issue with genetic uh, diversity in that population. And so they're going to now strategically start planning on how bringing more mountain lions into that population to kind of bolster it a second and perhaps a third time down the line. That was an interesting case because am I correct in saying that the Florida panthers were identified as a subspecies and then they were trying to find what the closest population was that matched them genetically? Yeah, um, well, partly right. So yes, originally called a subspecies. And this was based on the old idea that subspecies were sort of determined by morphometrics, which that's just a fancy word for saying the shape of an animal, right? So they measured the heads and the paws and all these different things. They looked at their color. And based on that, there were lots and lots and lots of subspecies of mountain lions. And the recent genetic work, which sort of now, of course, is based on DNA. And that shows that every mountain lion north of the southernmost part of Mexico, and really, actually, it's mo- mostly what people refer to as uh, Mesoamerica or Central America, the countries that are in between Mexico and South America. Those are a different spe- subspecies, but everything north of there is the exact same subspecies. So every mountain lion in Idaho, Montana, California, Texas, they're all the same mountain lion subspecies as those in Florida. And so that argument no longer holds. And because of that, they could bring in mountain lions from anywhere, including Texas, which is where they they actually grab some. And uh, they're all, in terms of genetic genetic subspecies, the same animal. It's interesting how how, how science has brought forward our our understanding, which is so important when we're looking at things like uh, breeding programs because the same parallel story that you've just told there is true of tigers that there was i don't know 15 20 different i can't remember the exact number subspecies historically and then when they actually started to look at genetic markers they realized that yes there's these morphological differences in uh, shape and, and size and some coloration and marking but actually these are just environmental adaptions over time and and they are genetically the same animal right and it is i mean it's certainly relevant for this species in the current world because there's all this discussion about you know whether for instance what, what should we bring mountain lions to the northeast where they were are locally extirpated and so based on the old ideas that it was a unique subspecies that was considered, well, you know, I don't know if we should bring a different subspecies because then it's not the native animal, if we put that in quotes, uh, that we're bringing back to the landscape. But now that we understand that those cats that used to live in what's called New England or the easternmost parts of Canada 
are the exact same animals that are currently in Idaho and Montana, as I said, there's greater scientific support for the idea that, yeah, that is actually bringing back the native carnivore that was extirpated several hundred years ago. I I assume, though, that there will be environmental adaptions that allow some of these animals or some of these populations of this what is the same species to thrive more in certain areas. So how do you tackle that when you're looking at reintroductions? Yeah, well, um, that's a good question. And, you know, there are differences in mountain lions across their range. So some are, for instance, those in Central America are generally the smallest and they're dark because they're in, in rainforest and sort of very heavily forested landscapes. And then you go further south, they're sort of the other extreme where they're kind of gray and they live out in these completely wide open landscapes, steppe habitat, grasslands, or sort of xeric shrubs. And so certainly they're different in size, they're different in color. Um, Are there local adaptations that would be absent if we were, for instance, to bring some from the west to the northeast that would make those northeast cats, uh, you know, have a less chance of survival. Um, there may be differences, but I, I doubt it would have any impact on whether uh, mountain lions we brought from the west to the east would have a chance of reestablishing. I mean, mountain lions are just so incredibly adaptable and resilient. And uh, I mean, in truth, it, you know, I, I, it's funny, we're in the a current exercise where someone has asked us to just map potential habitat in the east just to see if mountain lions were to get there on their own, which they're already starting to move east. And so they will get there eventually. Where would where would they live? And we were on the phone, some of us, you know, working on this exercise and just kind of laughing because they could live just about anywhere if you let them get there. <laughs> you know, and it's, there's not really a lot of biological limitations on where a mountain lion can exist. As long as people let them live, I mean, it's really about people, right? So as long as there's not major highways and super fragmented habitat, which certainly that exists everywhere. And certainly in the East, there'll be places, you know, they're not going to live probably within the 495 corridor of Boston or right around Washington, D.C. But rural Eastern landscapes that are sort of primarily farms or agriculture or timber property, I mean, there's no reason at all that those cats wouldn't love it there. There's plenty of deer. And there's there's plenty of woods. And even these landscapes where it's a lot of people, meaning like each person has a couple acres, but it's forested, cats are going to have no problem living in that landscape. The, the question, of course, would be social tolerance, you know, whether people will allow them to live there and whether they're willing to adapt the way they live. Because if you have big cats in your backyard, you can't just leave the family goat tied to the tree in the backyard and expect that it's no okay. well you can, you can. <laughs> <laughs> but, you might, but a little bit like uh, jurassic park it might not be there in the <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, i used to um, do it years ago with folks who'd say how do i see a mountain i'm like well take your goat you tie it in the backyard <laughs> when it screams turn on the light <laughs> yeah i mean there's so many things to dive into there I, i'm I think before we get into that, because this, I mean, your book talks a lot about our relationship with mountain lions and how we exist in a landscape with them. And it also talks a lot about 
the history of mountain lions and the history of, of hunting mountain lions and, and the current sort of climate of hunting mountain lions, which are, are all things I want to dig into. But I think for a, for a bit of backstory, I was so excited about you talking about catching cats uh, that I didn't really get your your kind of backstory before we start talking about the history of mountain lions. So what is your day-to-day, who, who are you working with and for? What does your life look like, Mark? Oh gosh! Um, and how did you get there? <laughs> yeah, all in three seconds. <laughs> it, uh, um, how, what does my life look like? So I work for an organization called Panthera, and Panthera is a global organization. We have people all around the world, and we are a cat organization, meaning that all of our work focuses on wild cat species, and we are a conservation organization. And that means that all of our work is really focused on the conservation of these species and more importantly, the landscapes in which they live. And even more importantly than that, we're really interested in the conservation of people and healthy human wildlife ecosystems. And the one thing I would emphasize, because I know the word conservation can sometimes put people's hair up, is... uh is that we're a science-based organization. So most of the people that work for Panthera are, are trained scientists and we're researchers that either are doing monitoring or gathering data that can help support sort of strategic conservation interventions or management, et cetera, of the varying wild cats. So that's who I work for. Uh, my job is I'm the director of the mountain lion program or the Puma program whatever word works best for you. And so my job is is really to sort of think strategically about where Panthera should invest in terms of on the field or in the field, um, whether certain topics should be addressed more than others, but really with the end goal of, of the conservation of mountain lions long-term. So that includes everything from social tolerance to uh, studying connectivity here in the Northwest to um, supporting sustainable and healthy hunting if uh, we're working in a country where there is hunting of mountain lions. Um, And it also means working across their entire range. So they range from Canada in the North all the way South through Central America into South America and all the way to the tip of South America. And so what else? Pretty extensive. (laughs) Yeah, it's big. And uh, I mean, my daily life, I mean, I'm a father um, and that dictates, you know, much of my schedule these days. And um, and when I'm not fathering, I'm working on cat stuff. And and when I can combine the two, I do. So as the boys uh, get older and older and more rugged, they they join me in the field for Catching Fun. cats and visiting kill sites and well, that sounds like a pretty good upbringing to me. Yeah, no, I'm hoping it'll it'll influence their lives. <laughs> yeah, I've, I was aware of uh, Panthera before before you you reached out um, to talk and before we organized you coming on, on the podcast. And I think the first time the organization had come to light in something I had written written. Sorry, it was a friend of mine who wrote the piece. I didn't write it, but that I that I read about was snow leopards. Um, and the the work that Panthera does uh, with snow leopards. So, I mean, are you? Is the organization? Is it? Does it include like lions in Africa? It's oh, always been the, like the lesser known or lesser talked about cats, rather than like lions and leopards are the two that and tigers that spring to mind. 
Oh, no, I'd say um, our biggest programs are probably African Lion. Our okay. program is massive now because it's got a huge amount of support to expand the work that we do from South Africa all the way into the Middle East, where they're doing a reintroduction of of the local subspecies of leopard there. There's um, a huge jaguar program. It's probably one of the biggest in terms of people and stretching across oh, I think, 11 countries. And then there's um, a small cat program, which is, you know, a huge undertaking is our newest program. So it doesn't have a whole lot of people working in it, but what they're trying to accomplish is on a scale that's kind of daunting for me. You know, they're trying to work with 33 species across the globe. Uh, and so that's just growing um, as we speak. Uh, what else? Snow leopards, of course, and uh, which you mentioned. And who, who are our other... A cheetah. There's a cheetah program, which is mostly integrated right now with kind of an more of an African program that addresses cheetah, lion, and leopard in several multi-species sites. And yeah, I mean, my goodness. And uh, I, I had no idea it was so so extensive. I'm gonna yeah. have to. I'm gonna have to re- read up more and see because I'm sure in some of the places that I go and I'm, I'm filming and working in, in Africa, there's probably a panthera project not a million miles away from where I am. So I'll have to look that up. Oh, there's one closer than you think, because there's now uh, panthera has been kind of tapped as the, from what I understand, as like the scientific uh, partner on a potential lynx reintroduction in Scotland. Oh, interesting. So I have somebody coming on the podcast in the next couple of weeks uh to talk about that very topic well, so yeah. that, there might be some crossover there yeah absolutely oh, <laughs> fascinating yes really close to home and, and where you're talking about is basically in the cairngorms which if i was sitting on the other side of the house right now i'd be able to see the mountains of where wow. the cairngorms start so <laughs> um i think what would be useful for people especially outside of uh, outside of the americas north central south america is explain mountain lions and their multiple names that they go by and how they kind of they fit into the evolution of of big cats as we know them today the big cats that exist today sure so mountain lions they are the world record holder for number of common names so they are they have (laughs) uh there was a a man named uh, in the in 1960, published a treatise on the species, and and he had gathered 84 different common names across the Americas, including many indigenous names that associate with m- many cultures across Central and, and South America in particular. And without doubt, there were more. There, that's just how many he collected. And it's still to this date, I believe, is the world record holder. In fact, I checked last year. So as of 2020, it was still the world record holder for most common names. So when you hear cougar, puma, catamount, um, mountain lion, uh, leon, I mean, there's so many names <laughs> across their range. And it's because there's so many people. And of course, this is related to the fact that they are the the terrestrial, so meaning the the, the animal that lives on the land that is native to the Americas, both North and South America, with the widest distribution of any mammal in the Americas. So wow. it's uh, they stretched historically from east to west coast in North America and South America, 
and from, say, halfway up Canada all the way down to the southern tip of South America. And so think historically about how many different cultures they would have crossed or overlapped with, and each one of them having a name for the, for the species and, and some way of, of interacting with them. So that's why, no doubt, they have so many names. And it's, um, it's a li- it can be a little confusing, actually. I, I remember when I was younger, thinking that they some of some of these names were actually different things, different animals, different species. Oh, <laughs> and it was only much later that I realized, no, actually, this is all the same cat. Uh, all the same cat, and Florida panther, of course, which adds to the confusion. Many people think that's a, a different animal than the, the mountain lion in the West. Um, I tend to say mountain lion just because of where I've worked, and I've worked in states where. They, they use mountain lion. Now where I live in Washington, funny enough, I, I'm a real outsider. And the second I say lion, um, everyone looks at me funny because here they say cougar. And uh, there's only two states in the U.S. It's Oregon and Washington where the predominant usage is, is cougar. Canada, predominantly cougar. U.S., predominantly mountain lion, except for Oregon, Washington, and Florida, where it's predominantly Florida panther. And then Everywhere else in the world appears to be uh, predominantly Puma. Puma, which is part of their Latin name. Yes, it is now. And it used to be Felis, but switched to, to Puma, yeah. So that's a little bit about um, their names. You asked a bit more about this. So um, in terms of who they're most related to, the thought is that the current Puma in the Americas evolved from the American cheetah. And in terms of who they're most related to today, it's the Yagurundi is their closest relative. They are not um, in the Panthera lineage, so the genus that includes lion and tiger and leopard. Uh, They are not as closely related to those species as they are to some of the local cats in the Americas. Um, They, you know, a couple of weird things about them. They're the fourth largest cat. I mean, they, they have a tremendous variation in size. So some, some leopards are much bigger than mountain lions, and some mountain lions are bigger than leopards. But in general, the largest mountain lions are, are bigger than the largest leopards. And so they beat out leopards to be fourth, fourth place for largest cat. And then they are the largest cat that can purr. And so for many years, they were considered... Yes, physically large, but a small cat because small cats purr and big cats roar and mountain lions can't roar. And so some of the old literature, I mean, still people use this today. Um, It's not based on any sort of real (laughs) science. It's just this idea that there are big cats and small cats and that big cats roar and small cats purr. And so therefore, uh, mountain lions are small cats, even though they might be big ones. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so that adds to the confusion of why some people, uh, including myself, a lot of the time I say kittens because small cats have kittens and big cats have cubs. Of and course. So, yeah. I, you know what? I never even thought about that because, I mean, in your book, you talk about, uh, I mean, kittens on, on multiple kinds on multiple occasions. And I'd always just taken it as a given because that's how I'd always heard them referred to. But yeah, that would be for our. Um, here's a question. I should really know the answer to this. Are, is it cheetahs cubs? Isn't it? Yeah, cheetahs are cubs because they they and yeah. Funny enough, they don't really roar. Yeah, um, like a big cat, but they are more closely 
related to those species. Hmm, yeah. But they're smaller. But they are smaller. Yeah, and smaller than. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so the again, naming for the young is kind of arbitrary. Oh, totally. And you'll hear people <laughs> in, in the U.S. say mountain lion cubs, and uh, and you know, I'm just thinking of in Latin America, they use um, the word. I often hear them. I've heard it translated as pups, not even cubs. But uh, the ah. same word they use for wolf young, I've heard used for mountain lion young as well. So, yeah, total, totally confusing. Don't worry about it. It's all good. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> anything goes. That's right. So, <laughs> a big thrust of your book, which uh, you very kindly sent to me, and I started reading. Uh, I started reading a couple of months ago. Then I had to put it down because it was a whole bunch of other stuff I needed to read. And then I finished it quite recently in preparation for us uh, having a chat on the podcast. Uh, it, throughout the, although there's like an entire chapter dedicated to it, but throughout the book, you are looking at this this human mountain lion interaction continually before we get into the kind of controversial and complex topic and history of hunting mountain lions in North America from a more modern perspective, as most people might think of conflicts with mountain lions, livestock and pets, what is the kind of state of play with that? How frequent is it? How often is it the case? I mean, is it the case that all mountain lions within the vicinity of people where they have the opportunity are going to be taking pets and livestock? Or is it particular, does it tend to be particular mountain lions that get a taste for taste for it and just because it's easy prey? Is this, whenever we see conflict, it obviously make, or particularly if it's conflict with people, it's the thing that makes the news. It makes the media. But for every cat that's making the news, there must be a lot more that are just quietly going about their business and eating deer, I would imagine. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that wherever there are people and mountain lions, there will be conflict. That That's just reality. So there will always be the odd pet or livestock that is killed by a mountain lion. And then, I hate to say it, but I think it's also to be realistic that there will always be those rare uh, negative encounters where a mountain lion attacks a person as well. I just don't think there's any way for those things to go away. And so the frequency of these events is tiny. You know, it's such a small fraction of mountain lions that that kill the wrong thing, if we call it the wrong thing, is is a domestic pet or some kind of livestock. Uh, it, it's very infrequent. Uh, we can emphasize that again and again. And there are many things we can do to reduce that type of behavior even more. And then in terms of attacks on people, again, incredibly rare, so infrequent. And yet, as you as you already pointed out, when such a, an event occurs, just the media grab it and run with it. And because there's lots and lots of evidence nowadays that that media that includes sort of uh, terror, drama, fear, all of those things spread more quickly on social media and have a farther reach than do positive or less controversial media topics. 
the most recent uh, the, there might be a more recent uh, instance but the most recent one that i can think of which wasn't actually somebody who was attacked but it was something that did the rounds on social media was uh, someone who was out for a run and i think they'd come across a mountain lion and her cub and it kind of it kept on sort of mock charging her in a way and pushed this person sort of back up the track that they had come. Did you see that, Mark? Oh yeah. The the Utah. What, what was your take on that? <laughs> right. So it it's an amazing video if you haven't seen it for those who are listening. Um so as you said, some this young man jogging on the trail sees some animals up ahead, sees that there it's a you know makes out it as a cat with young. And he thought it was a bobcat. So he charges up there with his phone out, video going, and ends up that it's not a bobcat. It is, which is a much smaller wildcat in the U.S. It was a mountain lion with young. And the entire encounter can be captured in those first few seconds of the video, if you go back and watch it. And you see one of the kittens run towards this young man. And at that point, the mother intervenes and places herself between the the jogger and her kittens. And the entire encounter is just a a mama mountain lion being defensive and trying her best to scare this jogger. And without doubt, she does a phenomenal job. And the, uh, the jogger is not only petrified, but it appears to me that he's splitting his attention because he does such a great job of keeping this cat in the frame of his video. And so, <laughs> you know, he's got this like amazing video of this encounter. And I'm just kind of, I, I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I'm picturing him with his phone out so that he can kind of see it. And he's just checking in on it every so often to make sure he's getting a video of this encounter. And when you are faced with a mountain lion, the first thing you need to do is to take control, right? You need to establish that you are nothing that they want to mess with. And he does that a little bit right in the beginning. He kind of, you know, makes, he raises his voice as high as it ever goes. He yells at her. But then from then on, he's just this kind of passive, not too aggressive guy having this prolonged encounter with a mountain lion that I think could have been ended immediately by just taking a couple of steps at her and giving her hell. Not worrying about his phone, just focusing on her. And uh, because the second he takes the time to pick up a rock and hit her, she just takes off running. But that took minutes, minutes for him to take the time to do that. And you see numerous times where she kind of stops, looks back over her shoulder, kind of checking where her kittens are. And in those moments, she's thinking, I could break off right now. I'm done. I've already done my job. And all he would have had to do was just take two steps at her and yell and she would have been gone. But, uh, you know, in summary, a cat defending her young, uh, really trying to make sure that this human was afraid of her and everything she did was bluff. It was just all stiff legs. And every time she charged, you could see she caught herself. There was no intention of ever making contact. She was just putting the fear of God in him and it worked. It (laughs) did work. Yeah. (laughs) in terms of, I, w- I was reading in the book, you talk about how the the rules and laws work when mountain lions take livestock or take pets. I, th- I think you were specifically talking about in California. And I had no idea that this this was how the system worked, where you could inform the authorities 
and they could essentially hunt that mountain lion down. Explain the mechanism and and how that works and how whether you think it's effective. Is it a good thing that it exists? Um, but I think explaining how it works first will be interesting for people who don't know. Sure. I'll I'll even give you one that just happened. So we just had one of the All right. So we're we're relevant our, and up to date. Yeah, on uh so the cats here in Washington that we so we we catch them, we fit them with GPS colors, so we know where they are at regular intervals. They send us our their data. And lo and behold, one of the cats we were following killed four goats and um just nearby. And so we got the call from the houndsman who works with us catching mountain lions. He said, I'm on my way. And uh, just so you know, this, <laughs> I looked at the data. This, this might be, you know, one of, one of the cats you're following. And I was like, Oh God. So I got on the computer and said, lo and behold, there, you know, he has a location that's you know, right there where this event is. And I was like, okay. And so the way it works is, you know, the landowner gets up in the morning, they check in on their goats. They say, Oh my gosh, it looks horrible. I think this might have been a mountain lion. They're, you know, upset. This woman was really upset. Um, and, you know, to to emphasize this, she she kind of wanted revenge. You know, that was what she told me. And so she called the state and she said, you need to get rid of this mountain lion. And the way it works here is the state comes in, they verify whether or not it was indeed a mountain lion. And they agreed that it was a mountain lion that had killed these goats. It was fresh enough that they could actually do something about it. And so they call a local houndsman who provides that service. Uh, and that varies by state. Some some houndsmen volunteer their time to support state agency management. Others are paid sort of on a contract basis. And so this houndsman shows up and, you know, they pick up the scent of the mountain lion around the dead animal and they run it up a tree, at which point local wardens um, dispatch the animal. So the way it works here is, you know, I actually asked the wardens, I said, so is it, you know, in California, for instance, the landowner makes the call. They say, I want to kill this mountain lion or I don't. I said, but here in Washington, there's actual, um, the way the legislation is written by, or at least the wildlife regulation that the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife follows is the moment that depredation occurs and depredation is fancy words for a mountain lion killing something it shouldn't, meaning non-native prey, a domestic animal a, of some kind. So this, the moment that happens, there's only one option open to the state agency, and that is uh, to kill the animal. They don't have any other options. So that's one issue that needs to be addressed, right? They need to have options. And so we're working with the state right now, not really us, but the state is within an internal review process right now to say, do we want to have options? But right now, so they get notified, they find out a cat killed a goat. They say, well, we got to kill the cat. They check in with the landowner and there is a, a, a discussion. The landowner was, in this case, very supportive, if not encouraging the, the killing of this mountain lion. And they say they, they like to engage the neighbors as well, because the when you're using hounds, you don't know where you're going to end up. And so technically, they need permission to cross private property. And so they'll check in usually with the neighbors around the house just to say, are you okay? We're going to release dogs. This is what happened. If you too are supportive of this process, we're going to go ahead and, and try to catch and kill this mountain lion. 
So, you know, in this case, most of the neighbors weren't home. <laughs> so uh, they just made the decision based on the information they had, which was they had tremendous local support from the owner of the goats. And I think they were able to contact at least one other landowner and, and they were supportive as well. And so the hounds are released. They treed the cat. She, he would, he had just drug one of the goats about, oh gosh, hundred no, maybe 200 yards away from their pen um, and was just sitting there. And, and I was, I actually was on site as well and uh, checked with telemetry. I just wanted to kind of really verify that this was an animal we were following and that he was truly guilty. I like to see the evidence for myself. So I did an inspection of the pen, um, verified his footprints were in there, um, you know, and verified with telemetry exactly where he was, went in and lo and behold, there's the dead goat that's missing. So, you know, everything really spoke to the fact that yes, he had indeed killed these goats. And so then the hounds are released. He ran, Oh, I can't remember. Not too far. He crossed two properties and um, then he was dispatched. So, yes, the process, it is an unbelievable system in that the landowner, regardless of the protections they have in place, can call the state agency and ask them to remove an animal that kills one of their domestic animals. So in this case, uh, the the goats were kept in a six foot pen. Um, the, the fence was six foot high. And there was a little shelter inside for the goats, but with no door, so they can come in, in and out of this shelter at, at any time. And the fence was nice, you know, as fences go. But in terms of protection against mountain lions, absolutely no protection at all. Any mountain lion could jump over a six-foot fence. And she, in, in fact, had dwarf goats. So these things were tiny. And so he just picked one up and jumped right over it again. And uh, so it's, uh, and the fact that there was no door on the shelter. I said, do you, you know, enclose them at night? She's like, well, you know, no. And I said, well, that would, that would be your first thing. The fact that you have a roof over this shelter is fantastic. That's the best protection you can have, but you got to have a door, you know, so that you literally close them in at night. You let them out in the morning. You can't have them wandering in and out of this shelter at all times of night and morning when mountain lions are walking by unless your fence were you know twice as high if not higher so i said but to me the best thing you could do moving forward is not to increase the height of your fence because i mean honestly there's debate should it be 12 feet high should it be 15 feet high i said just put a roof over your you know have a shelter eight feet high and put a roof on it and that keeps cats out but you have to put them in it every night and let them out in the morning. And so she seemed receptive to the feedback and said she would she would move forward with building a door for the shelter. But uh, mm. but that's the process. Okay. Yeah. okay. So I I assume like a lot of cats, they're they're hunting sort of first light and last light exactly. for the most part. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. So that that cat showed up there at. I think his point, he got there at about 4 a.m. in the morning, you know, a couple hours before first light, well, probably three hours before, and sometime in that window killed those goats. And so I guess a couple of things to emphasize, you know, because you're talking about the process, is that um, this happens frequently here in Washington, a lot, you know, that people have, I mean, she had 20 goats. So, you know, she has 20 goats. There, she lives in a very rural landscape. It's forested. It essentially is 
a forested habitat that's, you know, clearly supports large carnivores, including mountain lions. And she's right on the edge of any sort of town, right? So she, she backs up onto DNR lands, which is state lands, which are timber properties, which are just big forests, which back up onto U.S. Forest Service lands, which back up onto a huge national park. So there is an, a clear path unobstructed from a core area where there's tons of wildlife that goes right to her back door. And, you know, this is not to put her down at all, but this is the reality for many people who live in this landscape. They back onto this vast, we'll call it a wilderness, right? Um, um, In the loosest sense, that it's just a big, wild landscape. And there's plenty of evidence that the folks who live on those borders are more likely to have negative interactions with wildlife. Because well, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. There's not a lot of I mean, everyone can kind of get that right. <laughs> you live with them. Yeah, you're going to conflict with them. And so, what blows me away is that you know the way this process works is we're using state tax money, right? So this is the public is paying for this service. They're paying for the trucks. They're paying for the wardens to drive out there. Their time. They're paying for the bullets and the rifles. They're paying for the entire service. They're paying for the houndsmen. They're all paying for all of those things to remove a mountain lion that one or two people have decided to remove at the expense of whatever potential positive roles that mountain lion might play in the ecosystem, which might support yeah. the broader community. And, and without without evidence of, of proper precautions to exactly. prevent this without, negative interaction. Yeah, and what bums me out is that these same agencies or these same processes which pull on public resources to do this service of killing carnivores that kill livestock don't support infrastructure. So, for instance, there's no public fund available to landowners to say, hey, I would like to build the you know a better structure to protect my livestock. That doesn't exist. And there's no also there's no threshold like just as you said, Hey, did you actually take precautions to protect your livestock? And we're not going to provide you free services if you didn't, which I know is uh, the case, you know, for wolf depredation in parts of Europe. You know, they demand that if you don't have the right precautions in place, you don't get the free service that, you know, comes on the other end. And I, you know, it'd be a wonderful transition to see that in the U.S. too, that we actually begin to have people be accountable for their animals. There's two things that spring to mind, two, two examples that I can and draw from home as I'm thinking about, well, this, it seems almost too easy to have this big mammal, uh, well, essentially put down. That's, that's what they're doing. They're tracking it down and they're taking it out of the system. Here, I'm thinking of if a fox takes your chickens and you're someone who has the means and you uh, to, to do such a thing, you're probably going to wait for that fox to come back and you're going to shoot it. And very few people would probably take exception to that. Uh, some people would, but I think most people would probably be okay with that. On the other hand, but, but a, a fox is regarded as vermin here, a bit like coyotes in, in the U.S., on the other hand, if uh, a bird of prey, or all birds of prey in, in this country are protected, um, as I think they probably all are in the US, takes your racing pigeon or some fancy bird that you like keeping out of a loft in your garden and kills that bird, there is absolutely nothing that you can do as a, a reper- there is There are no repercussions to that. There's nobody you can phone to say, hey, 
this whatever it might be goshawk sparrowhawk repeatedly takes my racing pigeon you need to come and shoot this bird that mechanism doesn't exist so there's two kind of extremes there where you might have something that is continually causing a problem in terms of negative interactions with humans but in the same breath if we are to exist in these landscapes with them and have these uh, whether it be little miniature goats or whether we're keeping racing pigeons or we've got chickens i suppose to some extent that's kind of the price you pay for existing in a landscape with with other wild animals uh, I, I mean I, what is your you know what is the solution to mountain lion human interactions where they're becoming a a problem and i suppose the word problem really probably needs to be defined first because i would say that if an animal is coming through and takes one or two goats and then you never see it again it's an unfortunate incident i wouldn't call that a problem animal right no it it, it raises a couple of issues one um there's this dichotomy that everyone needs to be aware of is that the people who live with large carnivores and therefore experience the occasional negative interaction, whether it's a loss of a goat or a chicken or whatever, they kind of bear the cost, if you will, of living with these large carnivores. And they tend to have more negative associations or less tolerance for these carnivores than those who live separate from them and don't experience the risks of living with them, right? So it's this sort of urban-rural divide, right? That the urban community, they love the idea of large carnivores, but they, they don't have to actually deal with the loss yeah. of a goat or a chicken or anything like that. So I, I put that out there just to recognize that the loss of livestock is real and it, it impacts people. Absolutely. You know, and yeah. we, we want to honor that, right? Um, that said... There's two other things I'd like to say is one with mountain lions, which you already hinted at, that the question is, are there repeat offenders, right? So are mountain lions problem animals, in quotes, or are they just once in a while killing a goat? And we don't have a whole lot of information about this because the U.S. tendency is the second they kill anything, they're, they're gone. And so there's not a lot of follow-up information to see if they would do it again. and. But gathering all the anecdotal information we can, and by anecdotal, I mean like each research project has one cat or two cats that took a, a goat or something like that, and they, for some reason, weren't killed, and so they were able to be followed for some length of time after. All the evidence suggests that most of the time that it is totally random. It's just chance, a chance encounter between a hungry mountain lion and lo and behold, there's a goat that they see or hear and they're like, okay, this could work out for me. But Breakfast. Not, <laughs> exactly. They're not looking for goats. Um, yes, there are. there is evidence that once in a while you'll get an animal that does learn that, oh gosh, you know, if I keep going back to that neighborhood, there just seems to be easy pickings. Um, just as they as they would learn that there's a valley full of deer, and but again to emphasize that most cats, this is what the evidence suggests, don't become these quote problem animals. It's just random, and if that's true, that means there's no reason to kill them. 
because yeah. the, the chances they're going to do it again are really just based on where they live, how many livestock are in their landscape, and the protections around those said livestock. So that leads me to the second thing that I would emphasize is that in particular, when we're talking about pets and livestock and those conflicts with mountain lions, those can be mitigated. They can be reduced by, uh, you know, employing protective measures for your domestic animals. So this is this is one of the ones that to me is kind of frustrating or what I would call a no brainer because you can put a door on your shed. You can put your goats if you have six of them in something with a roof. I mean, these are not really things that I think should even be discussed. I mean, this is, you do them if you live in a landscape of mountain lions. And, you know, if you don't do those things and you lose a goat, personally, I do not think you should have the ability to call on public services to remove that carnivore. Um, And it's not to say that it's not a loss for that family. Of course it is. But there as you kind of have hinted at, if you live in a landscape with large carnivores, you do have to acknowledge the fact that you must live differently than in a landscape without them. It's not better or worse. It's just different. Just as there are precautions one takes if you live in a city, there are precautions you need to take if you live in a country with mountain lions. Um, So, I mean, this is, again, to me, it's not even up for debate. It's just, just the way it should be. Now, the other interaction that humans and mountain lions have had for a long time, and one that has a very interesting history that I'd like you to dip into because it's changed a lot, is the hunting of mountain lions. Because there, there is a time in the not-too-distant past where mountain lions by state had bounties on their head now they are largely protected and you I, I you can explain the details of what that protection entails but there are still places that hunt mountain lions and i'm i'm intrigued to understand from you what that system looks like and where the conflicts lie and should we be hunting mountain lions the hunting of big predators are, is obviously very emotive. I mean, probably the, one of the moti- most emotive is when we're, when we're, we're looking at, at wolves. You know, that's one that, that comes up in the, in the media a lot. Mountain lions, slightly less so. But it does beg the question, is it, a, is it an animal that we should be hunting? And if we are hunting it, why? What is the reason for hunting it? Is it a population that that needs managed when you told me right at the start of this conversation that there are still many areas that used to have mountain lions in that still don't, but they are slowly getting there. Right. It's it's a fantastic topic and really complex, right? And I, it, it really is one of the greatest conundrums around the species. And the conundrum to me is whether people are willing to compromise. Because just like so many other topics in the world right now, it's there's a divisiveness and there are two camps that are either pro-hunting or against hunting. And people don't want to discuss what it might look like in the middle. And I'll tell you, over the years, I've begun to just find solace in trying to stick with 
what I believe are the facts. And not to try to encourage or inflame the conflict between these opposing groups. So with that said, what I mean is that you can hunt mountain lions and conserve them, whereas some people believe that those two things are in complete opposition. Uh, I believe those two things are not in complete opposition. Um, Does that mean that we can't overhunt them or persecute them? Of course, we could overhunt them. And in many places, I would argue that we do overhunt them. Uh, Unfortunately, I'd say that one of the other things I would emphasize is that we don't know a lot about the ecological impacts of hunting mountain lions. And so therefore, my my sort of strategy to fall back on the science or the facts uh, falls short because we don't have all the answers. So what I mean by that is that we, we've actually got a decent sense now of if we kill X number of mountain lions in a population, that will probably see the population grow or decline or stay stable, or we will have next year this many mountain lions. We've got, uh, you know, not a perfect understanding of how that works, but we're, we've got a decent enough understanding of how we can impact the population in terms of numbers. And that's the traditional training of the wildlife manager, right? We think of the, of, you know, the way that game management has been <laughs> sort of ongoing for a century plus is that we, we want to have sustainable populations into the future. So we, we try to hunt that population where in a way that allows us to kind of harvest, to use that word, to harvest enough of those animals to satiate our community of hunters while ensuring that they can do so next year and that other people can can partake in, in the harvest of that population for years to come. And so it's this idea of balancing sort of how many can you kill or harvest versus how many you need to protect so to ensure that that population persists into the future. If that is your goal, just numbers of mountain lions, you can substitute deer, elk, whatever you're, you know, sage grouse, whatever you're hunting, um, then managers are, are doing a, a decent job in the U.S., and you asked, you brought up lots of things, the history, you know, what's happening, et cetera. And so I'll try to dip into some of those other tangents as I go. You know, historically in the U.S., just the quick version, we killed a lot of carnivores, right? Europeans arrived. They moved from the East Coast to the West Coast primarily. And as they swept across the country, they killed a lot of animals. I mean, this is well known in US history, right? Very well documented. Yeah, it doesn't need to really be hammered home. Um, But that include the extirpation of wolves almost entirely from the lower 48 states of the United States. They only persisted in one state. Uh, By the end of that westward expansion, mountain lions similarly were wiped out from the entire eastern half of the country, except for a tiny remnant population in Florida that no one even knew was still there until the early 1970s. And, you know, grizzly bears, of course, were nearly extirpated from the lower 48 states. Black bears are only in, I can't remember what percent of their former range. All the big carnivores really were knocked back in a big way. So in those early years, they were considered vermin. And, you know, just kill them any way you can, kill as many as you can. And this is a service to society. 
And so, you know, I think most people back then, there were animal rights advocates, even 200 years ago, active in the U.S. that were fighting hunting and the extirpation of wildlife. But I would say society in general was quite supportive of this idea of wiping out carnivores to create a more, a safer environment, right? So a safer environment in which they could um, progress, you know. And, <laughs> progress, uh, yeah. and I didn't really understand <laughs> ecosystem functionality back right, then, right? And, and, and just... the, the the web of interactions between right. species and how they were actually required for one another, and that we do actually need predators in the landscape, right? So all of that was you know irrelevant back then, and so people were pretty supportive. So you know we don't need to really go over that too much. What happened in the U.S., which is kind of unique, is this idea that they built this wildlife management system. As at sort of as we approach 1900, it was it was sort of established, but really was really becoming um, more established and practiced across all the states um, by 1900. That looked at wildlife management as really a business, right? So we were going to manage for sustainable populations, as I was talking about managing populations into the future, but it all focused on the species that people wanted to maintain and excluded those they didn't. So even by 1900, yes, we were protecting elk and deer and really doing amazing things to bring those populations back from from really heavy persecution by previous generations of people. We still were hammering the carnivores, right? Because that they were viewed as competition and you know also being a negative impact on deer and elk and the species we wanted. And so yeah. that began to transition. As we just what you were just talking about, there was this sort of ecological enlightenment that occurred in the sort of 1920s, 30s, 40s, as people began to realize that, wow, ecosystems are all tied together. Carnivores are part of those ecosystems, and they actually have a positive role to play out there and that, you know, they're part of healthy systems. And I think even since that time, more and more people are coming to realize that, wow, if we want healthy human communities, and we want our children to be healthy, we actually need healthy natural ecosystems because our air, our water, our food systems are all tied to that. And so therefore, if carnivores are supporting healthy ecosystems, then perhaps carnivores are also supporting healthy human ecosystems. And so that's kind of the the evolution that's, well, probably still occurring because some folks still haven't made that connection between carnivores and healthy children. <laughs> but uh, But we're getting there. And that transition has occurred. So all of that was happening. And so into the 1900s, mountain lions were still vermin. People were paying bounty. There were like livestock associations paying bounties. There were sporting clubs that were, you know, primarily set up for um, wealthy folks who were interested in hunting deer and elk. They were paying bounties for carnivores. States were paying bounties. And there was even federal money for carnivore control into the 1900s. So, I mean, they were just being hammered on all fronts. But then there was a big movement as the ecological enlightenment occurred, kind of around 1950, there was a challenge that states, but some states began to, to reconsider how they managed carnivores. And let's say by about 1970, most states had transitioned from one in which mountain lions were persecuted as complete vermin, kill as many as you can, any way you can, some states having full-time employees that killed mountain lions, to one in which they were mostly managed as a game species. And when I say game species, you can think of like deer management or elk management, same same style, that 
Now there were limits on the number of mountain lions that could be killed. You had to own a license to engage in mountain lion hunting. There were seasons, so you couldn't just do it any time of year. You had to actually wait for the season, the hunting season, and you couldn't do it any way you liked. Suddenly there were rules about you know, what firearm was legal. You couldn't necessarily just set a snare, for instance, for a mountain lion. You might have to use some sort of a weapon of some kind. And so all of these laws began to be established throughout the West. There are exceptions, but that's kind of the general theme. And since 1970-ish, that's really been the case for mountain lion populations throughout the Western United States, with two notable exceptions. California, where they've been protected for most since 1972. And for various, there's been various regulations around that, but they're still protected. And Texas, where it's just like the wild west of 200 years ago, where you can kill as many as you want, any way you want, and don't even so have to tell are, anyone. So, so those are the two polar examples. Those are the polar examples. But most states are somewhere in the middle where they manage hunting. And so, uh, yeah. I'm intrigued then. Uh, I mean, since you have those two examples, you've got the, the Texas and the California example. And then the the spectrum in between. What is what is good for mountain lions? If we consider that humans also exist in in these landscapes, so maybe you know, what has happened in California as a result of this blanket protection? Although they still, if I'm not mistaken, have mechanisms to go and kill problem mountain lions. Yes, absolutely. So. That's great. And that I, I obviously rambled a lot there, but there was so much to kind of share. To get at, I think, some of your key questions, one, that under this management of hunting mountain lions throughout most of the West, except for California and Texas, um, that mountain lion numbers have increased dramatically. And that many would argue that they're doing just fine in terms of but is that is that cause and effect like is is it more okay that might be correlated but is is hunting the reason for that is it because of uh the funding that's gone into further protection or would have that happened anyway ah good great great question and you hear because that- i know that a lot of people in the hunting yeah. community yeah well we hunt in all these states and the mountain populations <laughs> have gone up well that's great but like did you actually do anything to help that right, right, <laughs> and right. i don't know the answer to that because i hear it all the time no, and no. yeah i really want to know yeah no you've hit the nail on the head this is like that classic argument that you hear from many in the hunting community that hunting has saved north american wildlife no, it's the controlling of hunting that has saved North American wildlife. It's putting regulations on it and limits on it. Because if people could just hunt anytime they want, as many as they want, we wouldn't have anything here, right? And so I think the mountain lion population has rebounded, not because we're hunting them. It's because yeah. we're limiting how we hunt them, when we can hunt them, how many we can hunt. And I think it's even more complex than that. I think it's the removal of wolves across most of the United States has really facilitated. Has competition for mountain lions? Exactly. They're huge competition, uh, huge impact. Okay. And that's some of the research we're still publishing now is we're trying to figure out this relationship. But it seems quite clear to me now that mountain lions, or excuse me, wolves are one of the greatest impacts on mountain lion abundance in any given area. And so when those, okay. when you combine that with human hunting, which are the other major impact on the abundance of mountain lions, in any given area, those two things can interact and, and become synergistic and really 
you know, cause quite rapid decline of mountain lions uh, in a particular area. And so that's what we saw, for instance, in Wyoming, where we finished a big project a couple of years back. And we saw the population drop by 48% over about eight years. And it was mm. as wolves recolonized and expanded into that system and human hunting was still ongoing. And in fact, human hunting was reduced over the course of the project, not just because we were feeding the agency data that's saying, hey, the mountain lion population is in trouble. And they responded and said, okay, we'll reduce the quota. But because wolves were establishing and the primary hunting method was hounds and hounds and wolves don't really mix. mix. And so uh, the hound hunters were pulling out of the ecosystem where we were working. Oh, uh, because they didn't they didn't want their hounds being taken by wolves. Yeah, there were numerous oh, hounds killed right in the heart of our study area. In fact, in one winter, the two primary outfitters, meaning like the guides who would, so clients would pay them to go on a mountain lion hunt. They each had a dog pack and they were all killed in the exact same winter by wolves. Oh, and so wow. it was like a sudden shift from hunting mountain lions to none. But even as that occurred and wolves really spread through the system, that decline continued to occur. And we think it was prime, it was more driven by wolves than it was human hunting in that That's system. Interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. So, I, I wonder, though, is, is there another element here where, I mean, it's well documented that a lot of the, the taxes, whether we're talking about Pittman-Robertson, which is the, the tax on ammunition and sporting goods, which helps fund a lot of the wildlife agencies, or whether it's over-the-counter tags to go, and, uh, to go and hunt, fund a lot of the conservation efforts, which have, uh, along with the restrictions which you talk about, have helped facilitate this uh, thriving population in many places of many ungulates. And that is the prey species of things like wolves and and mountain lions. That must have con contributed to it as well, I would imagine. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's trying to keep me on track here. It's good. There's So we've got regulation on hunting. We've got sudden abundance of ungulates because we, as we were regulating and changing laws to do with mountain lion hunting, we were also doing that even earlier for deer and elk hunting. And it was a revolution because we were doing, we had really hammered the populations in North America of deer and elk. And suddenly under these new regulations in which their states were really managing the hunting and harvest of deer and elk, those populations exploded. And so think of mountain lions that were only surviving really in the remotest, toughest places to reach on the landscape, mountain ranges, deep woods, etc they're suddenly starting to repopulate and grow and suddenly there's food everywhere. <laughs> and this yeah. changed even where they could move on the landscape because this is something, you know, relevant as well is that even as cattle pushed East to West, that changed the American West and it changed the ability for, for instance, shrubs versus forbs to grow because as you compact soil under the, the hooves of cows, it makes a much better system for shrubs to grow than it does grasses. And that changed where deer could live on the landscape. And suddenly deer, as the settlers moved west and established and cattle did, and regulation allowed deer to grow up and to start expand, they said, wow, we have more places to live in the American West than we ever have before. So deer are moving into the deserts. They're moving into the Great Basin. This has caused all sorts of problems for bighorn sheep because as the deer moved in, so did the mountain lions. 
which historically were mm. quite rare there. <laughs> and um, yeah, you talk about that's one example yeah. that you give in the book. Actually, is the big hole sheet and the mountain lion interaction, where we got this species that they're desperately trying to hold on to. I mean, huge amounts of money and a colossal effort is going into restoring populations of big horned sheep and protecting them, which is also actually a huntable species mm-hmm. um, under very strict regulation and, and permitting. But you've got a predator species, which is doing quite well by all accounts in most places, that is negatively impacting some big horned sheep populations. But it is facilitated by this increase in abundance of ungulates, which we've facilitated. <laughs> Absolutely. We are the reason why there are deer in those locations, which are not just subsidizing, they're really kind of fueling the mountain lion population. The mountain lions rely on the deer to really get by. But if you only have 20 sheep in that system and they run into a sheep once in a while and kill one, yeah, that, that can be you know devastating for a tiny population of sheep. So is that an instance, Mark, where, because I, I have this discussion quite a lot when we're, when there is this view that certainly was one that was established sort of probably back, I mean, 1920, this kind of protectionist view back 1920s, and then it kind of, it grew and then it died out and it's sort of coming back where we should have less uh, hands-on impact on a landscape and kind of remove ourselves from it and let it do its thing. And I am very much of the opinion that we have reshaped it too much to do that. And it's kind of an irresponsible thing to do would be not to be looking at a landscape and work out how we could best manage it for ourselves to live in it, but also the species that we share it with. And this seems like quite a good an example where it's probably going to be almost impossible to redress this explosion in deer numbers and, and the areas that they've repopulated, which are feeding mountain lions. So is it, a, is it a case in that particular instance where not only should deer populations be controlled because they're in a habitat where historically they, they probably wouldn't have been, but also the mountain populations that have come with them, which are now negatively impacting a sheep species, which, by the way, we are also responsible for their decline, largely because right. of domestic sheep and uh, viruses that they pick up. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what a great example of why things are never black and white. It's it's just a thousand shades of gray, and that just as you said, you've got these complex ecosystems. How can we address that without removing the deer? And if we did just let things go. Um, we just have to accept the consequences that they aren't going to return back to 300 years ago. It's it's a done deal. The soil yeah. has been changed. The deer are there. It is now an entirely new system. And so, you know, some bold people years ago su- suggested, well, we need to remove the deer. But that's that's like, uh, you know, anti-religious here in the United States. You can't <laughs> remove them. That's deer. like removing guns. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that. So that was did not go over very well, but everyone was a little more supportive of, well, let's just remove the mountain lions. But as we all know, that's a Band-Aid. You, you'd have to keep doing it over. Yeah. Because they're is that a problem, though? I mean, is that like that kind of active management where – well, the deer populations. I mean, we, here in in Scotland, and I mean, it's actually a very hot debate right now. Are are 
higher densities of deer populations in some parts of Scotland, but the, the same in the U.S. and populations of of antelope in in Africa, where they are culling a certain proportion of the population every year, in sync with what the habitat can cope with. That I mean, you talk mm-hmm. about carrying capacity in your book. I mean, those same um, methods could be used with predators, and they are used with predators, such as mountain lions. I mean, is is that a problem? It, it's, it becomes an ethical and a moral, moral question more than can it be done? There is the mechanistic question, right? Is it possible to control yeah. carnivores at that but level. we know that that's possible. We, we, I mean, scientifically, is it? Yeah. If I know that, <laughs> yeah. I, I, removing um, ethics and morality from science is actually yeah. increasingly difficult as every year goes by. But just from a scientific viewpoint about trying to, I was going to say balance, and I hate using the word balance, but trying to manage the system in the most strategically sensitive way possible so that we're getting this sort of maximum benefit for the ecosystem and the species that that are in it It, without considering the the public moral outrage about killing wolves or or killing mountain lions even if it was a a short term uh, method and mechanism for longer term change is that something that makes sense it could. To manage mountain lion populations. Yeah, I mean, I think there will be circumstances where one could argue that that makes the most sense. Um, in terms of long-term sustainability and health of ecosystems, the ideal would be to remove the deer. And there's a there's a similar story uh, from the Channel Islands, which are off the coast of Southern California, so Santa yeah. Barbara Venture. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you followed the, the pig eradication on the islands, but one of the big drivers was that there's a, a, an endemic species there called the island gray fox. It's a, just like our North American gray fox, but slightly smaller and genetically distinct. enough. Is this to, the same as the Catalina fox? Yeah. Is that the same yeah, fox? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those guys. And uh, so they were doing horribly because golden eagles were out there and just mowing them down. And historically, there weren't many golden eagles out there. They were all bald eagles, and they were leave- and bald eagles didn't hunt foxes. And so there was this big discussion about well, what, what's changed, what's happened. And what they decided was it was all about pigs. Because pigs had established on, this, on the islands, the golden eagles had moved out there to take advantage of this new food source. And because the pigs were subsidizing the golden eagles, which were reproducing and becoming more and more numerous, and they were occasionally picking off gray foxes, it was a bad thing for foxes. Same idea with bighorn sheep, deer, and mountain lions. And so there, they said, well, if we really want to do the best thing to return this system back to what we think was more natural, right, historically, the best thing to do is to get remove the pigs with the hopes that we'll see a reduction in golden eagles and therefore gray foxes will be okay. And that's what they went forward with. They removed pigs, which was an unbelievable effort we won't talk about. Um, And, you know, of course, the ethics and morals of that could be debated by different groups of people, but they shot and killed hundreds of pigs, thousands probably, I can't remember the numbers, 
And they removed them from these islands. And lo and behold, they were able to reduce the eagle population. Balds are again, bald eagles are again the more numerous species, and foxes have been saved. And what's nice about that story is they don't have to continue to intervene. They don't need to continue to to kill golden eagles or to, you know, kill whatever. Which seems like a crazy thing to statement. Right. To kill golden eagles, yeah. Right, right. Which, of course, are a protected species, so it would be a a real mess. Just, um, But it's the same idea. Is the best strategy to go in and just hammer mountain lions every year, Mm -hmm. which will inevitably keep killing sheep? Or... Can we get the sheep population enough to be robust enough to just be able to deal with it? That would be, you know, the next best thing. Of course, yeah. Can we get there without reducing the number of deer? And, you know, honestly, I'm not sure. Uh, we may have to, I mean, the based on sort of ecological theory and what we know about the way ecosystems work, the best approach would be to tackle not just the mountain lions, to tackle the deer. That's the biggest issue because it's the crux that's holding up this whole altered ecosystem. And if we can remove it, that we have the best chances of seeing the the bighorn sheep there because they do compete with deer in other ways as well, but also through that shared predator. And so that would be the best approach to kind of helping the sheep out down there. You know, many of those systems they are is also human hunting. Do we need to hunt these populations? It's really there's no reason to. So that's additional take on these bighorn sheep populations that could be, you know, stopped. Uh, parts but of- you could argue in that, because I know that this is definitely what somebody's going to write in to me about, right. is that you could argue that the the huge amount of funding that goes into trying to protect bighorn sheep more than makes up, or many makes up many, many times over for the relatively small number of what is old rams taken out of the population. Anyway, and and there's beautiful evidence for that. Like for instance, in in West Texas, there's I'm trying to remember is it Elephant Mountain or there's a a national wildlife or it's a state property, I believe, that they have bighorn sheep on, not many, mm-hmm. and they do. They allow just a handful of hunters in each year, and they're escorted by the refuge staff, and they're even told which rams to kill. And that yeah. brings in enough money to fund everybody's salaries, the trucks, the program, the protection in place for those species. And that's a beautiful example of how a very controlled, limited hunt is providing the conservation means to protect that species. There are other examples, I think, where it's not as clean, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, so there is a balance between you know, it, it's really about scale, right? When you're working on one mountain, you can do that so beautifully. When you're working across an entire state, like New Mexico or Arizona. Yeah, I mean, just doing the census in itself is right. oh, is a huge task. Huge task. And, and you know, and so it, it, uh, it just becomes one of these super complex, ecologically challenging dilemmas, a conundrum, if you want to call it that. And it's just, mm-hmm. uh, how do we do it? You know, um, but I think to to bring back to your question, which is, are mountain lions, could they sustain that kind of management? Or is it okay for mountain lions? And I think one could argue that for some of those ecosystems, it might make sense to do some carnivore control if, you know, depending on the objectives of, you know, for the ecosystem, I would 
again, encourage that addressing just carnivores is not a long-term solution. It's a Band-Aid. Of course, of but course, yeah. It's, really, it's a really, really important question. I think anybody who listens to this podcast who hunts, just really think about what Mark's just said there because it's, yeah. it's I don't think we think about that enough. Right. And, you know, what we're aiming for, I believe, is healthy ecosystems, right? Not um, ecosystems that rely on us doing very invasive management continuously. And so the other part of your question is, are, you know, how are mountain lions doing? And I briefly said it already once, but in terms of numbers, they seem to be doing okay in the West. Uh, you know, that the, under the current management, which, you know, some would argue is not protection, but it is, there are protective <laughs> regulations in place to limit how we impact them. They're doing okay. And again, it's partly to do with the number of deer and elk in the system. It's partly to do with the lack of wolves. It's partly to do with regulations of hunting. But whatever the reason is, they're doing okay. And then I just want to hammer one more thing home with related to that, which is we actually don't know how populations really function, meaning that we don't really know how to measure or explain or describe the health of a mountain lion population. All we can do is look at the number of mountain lions. And there's a lot of evidence growing that even under heavy persecution, that yeah, they're, they're resilient, meaning that they can bounce back, they can grow more mountain lions, that it's not necessarily a healthy population because you get these shifts in the age of mountain lions on the landscape, um, which have different behaviors, they interact with people in different ways. You know, for instance, there's some evidence that suggests that once you cross some threshold level of hunting, that you might see youngsters start uh, killing livestock more or pets. Or I mean, that would make sense to me as you as you're removing uh, more dominant pressures from a landscape. I mean, that happens in a number of species, exactly. especially species that hold territories. Right, and I think there's growing evidence for that in mountain lions, and I would love to see more research on it to really. Make sure we understand that sort of interaction better, because I, I would be clear to say that we don't understand it well. But there, you know, that's I think the next level is we can say that there's in terms of numbers that mountain lions seem to be doing fine throughout the West. But now the next challenge for us is to determine whether they are truly healthy mountain lion populations. They are functioning normally, meaning there's dispersal. The youngsters get to move to other populations. There's a the right proportion of old to young cats, males to females, um, and that they're providing all the positive things that mountain lions do in ecosystems to maintain healthy ecosystems and healthy human communities. So, you know, just to hammer home again, this is where, I, you know, one of these conundrums about compromise and sticking with the facts. You know, we know certain things that hunting can occur while conserving the species, that we can hunt mountain lions in some instances and still maintain healthy populations of mountain lions, that hunting mountain lions isn't all bad. And yet there are very likely thresholds of hunting, meaning if you go, if you hunt them at a certain level or, you know, we'll call it hunting them hard, um, they, there will be negative impacts for us potentially sure. by increasing conflict. Um, certainly for us in terms of ecosystem health, 
and in negative consequences for the mountain lion population in terms of their functionality, whether it's social behaviors, dispersal patterns, um, all the sort of internal dynamics that we just kind of generally ignore at this point. So uh, that was a lot of words, but I I, I just want to try to... It's important, it very important. Yeah, yeah that there is... So, so- I have a question then, and I know I realize that you're probably going to have to go pretty soon because you've got to probably got to go and catch cat. <laughs> um, for those, there's a good proportion of people on this podcast who would never, in a million years, consider hunting a mountain lion. There will equally be a proportion of people on this podcast who either have, or would love to, or would consider it. How can people who are in the hunting community? even if it's not actually specifically targeting uh, mountain lions, but just in, in the bigger community, that maybe they're just somebody who, who hunts deer and buys their over-the-counter um, tag every year. How can they be allies for mountain lion conservation? What do they need to think about more going forward, given that we're, I think that we really are moving into this new generation, a new narrative of, of hunters out there people who hunt and fish and enjoy the outdoors who are returning more to this sort of hunter naturalist you know people who fish who are also naturalists of the streams and rivers i'm i'm seeing that i'm seeing that as the the young generation younger generation are coming through they want to really understand how the activities that they pursue because they enjoy it um, partly because of the activity but partly because they enjoy being in nature, how they are impacting it within this greater web and, and greater ecosystem of interactions. So what is the what can they do? What can we we do to sort of fulfill this desire that I think most people have, which is to do good, but still be able to uh, interact in the landscape. And for some people interacting in the landscape, is hunting deer, or it might be hunting mountain lions. Yeah, they well said too. There, I I recognize a shift as well that more and more folks want to hunt in a conscious manner and and participate in nature rather than just dominate it, right? And, yeah, yeah. And speaking to that audience in particular, it's you know how do we shift the hunting community at large? Because unfortunately, the media sees most of the folks who are at the extreme end of hunting um, that are more about shooting big guns and, and being competitive and dominating nature rather than participating in it. And it kind of overshadows the, those of us who are seeking something different. And so what can one do? Uh, well, I think one can begin to articulate it to their agencies and whoever their wildlife officials are locally, whether it's a state or a federal or a provincial government or whatever the agency is that is responsible for uh, dealing with game management, they are very used to listening to hunters and <laughs> and anglers. You know, that is their constituents. But that conversation is dominated by people who only value one or two species at the expense of all the others. And that if we can get hunters to begin to engage in the conversation and articulate the importance of healthy ecosystems, we can encourage the dialogue within these agencies to shift from one of 
customer service, just making sure they have their deer and elk to hunt next year, to one of a a service, a public service that ensures that community health is the priority and not just the service of a trophy animal to a small number of people the following year. And we have to make that shift. And so that would be part of it is to try to work within their agencies to make change. The other would be to encourage all of their friends and family who do not hunt to participate in the discussion. So they too need to engage with their state agencies and talk about what their goals are for local wildlife populations so that there is a more balanced approach to recognizing the needs of people, what people want, and that all of those views can be incorporated into strategies um, that help sustain healthy ecosystems on the landscape. Um, the other thing I would encourage, you know, hunters do it well already, is they're helping fund these agencies through the purchasing of licenses, through the Pittman-Robertson, you know, talking in the U.S., the these various uh, excise taxes that have been redirected to help with conservation at the state level, but realize all of those funds are really being focused on state management, which is just one small slice of what conservation is doing more broadly. So non-hunters are typically putting their funds in different pots, which are also doing conservation work, whereas hunters are typically putting it in the pot that can that contributes to the function of state wildlife agencies and the state wildlife agency agenda, which includes conservation programs, land purchase, uh, the management of wildlife species, the protection of endangered species in their states, all of those things. But if we can diversify funding at the state level, it will also encourage a broader discussion and a more inclusive discussion of all people, right? So we need to get the non-hunters to start supporting these state agencies, which are generally so desperate for additional funds already. And so how do we make that happen? And it's not just as easy as, well, I'll just start giving them money. There's actually a lot of obstacles for non-hunters to give money to support state agencies that are in place by those who are fearful of losing control of state wildlife agendas. And that's something I talk a lot about in the book. And I know it's a controversial, very sore subject for many people, but I talk to you as a hunter, but as one who wants a healthy ecosystem, that this is just the reality. We need to get... A I had no idea you were a hunter, Mark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I didn't know uh, that. I honestly didn't know that. I, I mean, that's brilliant that I didn't know that before this conversation, because you just reached out to me because you listened to the podcast, I think, before. <laughs> and I was speaking to you just as you know, as an expert in mountain lions, I had no idea that you were actually a hunter. That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, I, this, I mean, this is, this has been an incredibly enlightening and pragmatic conversation. And I think that these kind of conversations, like we've just had over an hour and a half, we need to, we need to hear more of these because I think that we would, we would create a, a far more inclusive landscape and a better landscape and improve our interaction with wildlife if we could if we could have these kind of calm interactions <laughs> like like we've just had and and I will say that you know that listening to your podcast I recognized as you as someone who could have that conversation and and I appreciate you for doing that 
Well, Mark, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And I, I know that I'm going to be flooded with emails and messages off the back of uh, this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for all the work that you've done over, over many years. And if people are intrigued by this conversation, then definitely go and check out Mark's book, The Cougar Conundrum, Sharing the World with a Successful Predator. Um, it's all the things that we've talked about in this podcast and a whole heap more. And I think, Mark, I think you said to me in an email that it's just about to be available on audiobook as well, is it? That's right. I think it's released the end of this week on audio. Well, perfect. So by the time this podcast goes out, it will have already been out for a week. So Wonderful. <laughs> ideal timing, almost like we planned that. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I better let you go and catch a cat now. Yeah, thanks very much. The team is is <laughs> sending me lots of messages. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. All right. Well, thanks for your time and well, good luck with your show.